Please stand for the scripture reading, which is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom will be, we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timion, and Paramias, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. You may be seated. Good morning. As you might be able to guess, this week we are taking a break from our study, our systematic walk through verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew to teach on something that is timely in the life of our church, namely on deacons and their service in the church. While it is true that generally speaking it is best and safest to preach expositionally verse by verse through books of the Bible, uh, there are times when it is both wise and necessary to deviate from that practice to address an important issue in the life of the church or even in the life of our nation. The pulpit should be the place that informs the minds and hearts of our congregation. We shouldn't let it be a Google search or Facebook or YouTube or any of those other kind of outlets. Those shouldn't be the places where you go to as a Christian to learn how should I think about something or how do I learn about something that's important to the church. God's servants, informed by his word, must do a better job of being aware of the times that they live in and being proactive in guiding and instructing those who are placed in their care. So even as I much prefer preaching expositionally from a text, we will at times, such as today, take a topic or a subject and address it according to Scripture. So I ask you to join me in prayer as we continue. Father, I do thank you that your word is sufficient for us to guide us in, in godliness, to set us down that narrow path that leads to life. 
Father, I pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would shape our understanding of deacons in the church as we study your word, as we confront things that we might have seen or heard before, and allow your word to guide us. Father, may your spirit edify us, grow us, sharpen us, encourage us, make us more like Christ. And as we seek to instill deacons in the ministry of deacons in this church, Father, may their service be a blessing to this body and help equip and motivate this congregation to be the kingdom, to be the light in this community. That your gospel would go forth. That your love would be on display among believers and the world would take notice and yearn for Christ by the work of your spirit. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to be focusing on the office of the deacon within the church this morning. Of the two offices that are in the church, and we only believe there are two, there are elders and there are deacons. Of the two offices in the church, I think most people, for most people, the office of deacon remains the greater mystery. First of all, in many Protestant denominations, especially denominations that are Baptist in name or in practice... In those churches, deacons have often been given a role or an authority that is outside of their biblically prescribed arena. In those churches, the deacons often serve as a pseudo-elder or as a part of a business-like board of directors. And they have often, in practicality, run the church. Until recently... And for the past handful of generations, the majority of Baptist churches were structured with a senior pastor focusing on the teaching of the church and on the vision casting. And if that church was large enough, he might have a number of assistants working for him. We would call them associate pastors or pastors of discipleship or youth pastors or, or fill in the blank. Even if they were all called pastors, the senior pastor was the one who was clearly in charge. He was clearly the boss, and he clearly set the direction. So that group of pastors, if they were fortunate enough to be able to support more than one man, didn't typically act like a plurality of elders working together to guide and protect the church. So the deacons in that context functioned as though they were the counterbalance to the senior pastor. Instead of meeting the tangible needs of the congregation, focusing on the ministry for which that office was created, and thereby allowing the elders to focus on the ministry of the word, they often stood in opposition to the pastors. They often acted as though they were needed to protect the congregation from the whims of the pastor. Well, even as we could see so much wrong with that kind of setup in a church, we can at least be gracious to how that kind of functioning developed. 
In modern evangelicalism, pastors are often outsiders to the congregation and to the community in which they serve. Often pastors are little more than hired hands brought in just to fill a need and perform a service. They most often do not stay in any local congregation for more than a few years before they move on to that next level of ministry success in another church. Often they leave before they have really even had the chance to truly integrate into the congregation they serve or into the community in which they find themselves. As such, they are often held at arm's length until they are needed for some special kind of service that they might uniquely be gifted for. Deacons, however, are usually men who have long been a part of a congregation and the community. They tend to be known quantities. They have seen a number of pastors come and go. It is no wonder that they would see themselves under that kind of framework as needing to protect the congregation from the ever-changing passion projects and varied focuses of the pastors who are just passing through. They know that they will very likely be there long after the pastor has left. They know the next guy will come in with new ideas, seeking to cast a new vision. So they feel a responsibility to provide some sort of stability for the congregation. So in an endless cycle where the shepherds are perpetual strangers to the congregation, it is no wonder that men in the church would position themselves such that they could limit the turmoil that constant change brings upon a congregation. Of course, that same action also serves to guarantee that pastors are not able to accomplish a whole lot in a church. And it will often lead to them not being able to lead very well and become the driving force that will make these pastors feel that they cannot be effective where they are and that they must move on to somewhere else where they might be able to actually serve as God has called them. But I don't, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody for me to hear me say that that isn't how the church is supposed to be led. That's not how elders are supposed to function. That's not how deacons are supposed to function. I'm sure many of us have seen this type of thing play out in the various churches that we have been a part of. The ministry of deacons in many churches has become confused, and it has morphed into something that it was never meant to be. As such, while most of us have some vague idea of what we think deacons are supposed to be, what we think they're supposed to do, we have little to no real practical experience with the way that the Bible prescribes the office of deacon. So my goal this morning is to try to help us understand why the office of deacon was created in the first place, what they are called to do, and how their ministry of service is meant to help facilitate the ministry of the elders. I don't intend to unduly criticize or condemn those men in those churches in which this has gotten all muddled, though we may at times need to distinguish what the Bible calls for against and over what we have seen and what we have experienced. 
Well, part of the problem, no doubt, is that the Bible has surprisingly little to say about deacons. We have one passage where the office of deacon is instituted. That's what we had read for us before the sermon in Acts 6, though the word deacon isn't actually used in that passage. We have one passage where the qualifications for deacons are listed out alongside the qualifications for elders. And we have one passage where the deacons are simply referenced as existing in the church alongside the elders. That's pretty much it. And while we can often find help in our confession to help us navigate those things that might not be as clear as we would like in Scripture, our confession, too, says surprisingly little about the office of deacon. In chapter 26 on the church in our confession, in paragraphs 8 and 9, we read, A local church gathered and fully organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders. That's the same role, the same office, just called either overseer or elder, and deacons. They are to be chosen and set apart by the church and called and gathered in this way for the distinctive purpose of administering ordinances and for carrying out any other power or duty Christ entrusts with them or calls them to. This pattern is beginning to continue to the end of the age. In paragraph 9, Christ has appointed the way to call someone prepared and gifted by the Holy Spirit to the office of overseer or elder in the church. He must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself. He must then be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. The body of elders of the church must lay hands on him if there are any already in place. A deacon must be chosen by the same kind of vote and set apart by prayer and the laying on of hands as well. That's it. A couple of short passages in the Bible and a very short description in the confession. So is that enough to give us a proper understanding of the purpose and the functions of de deacons in the church? Is that enough to keep us from falling into the errors that many of us have witnessed in churches that we have been a part of in the past? Fortunately, I believe that it is enough, it is adequate, for our needs. So to that end, this morning we are going to first look at the need for deacons, as revealed in the narrative of Acts 6, 1 through 6. Then we are going to look at the qualifications of deacons, as listed in 1 Timothy, Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Following that, we will look at a number of the things that deacons are, as well as a number of things that deacons are not. Then we'll briefly discuss the way that we have decided at Legacy to appoint deacons and why. And then follow with the call for us all to serve the body of Christ. So why are there deacons in the church? Or maybe better yet, let's start further back. What is a deacon? What does that word even mean? Well, the word deacon is a transliteration from the Greek word diakonos, which is most often translated as servants or minister, and is derived from the verb meaning to serve. Most of the time when we come across that Greek word in Scripture, it is speaking of something other than the office of deacon. 
Both men and women who were notable for their dedication and particular service to the church were at times referenced as deacons or generically servants of the church. In fact, the same word is used in the New Testament to describe people who aren't even a part of the church, such as in Romans 13, where the rulers whose authority has been given by God, that they might punish the evildoers and reward the righteous, those rulers are called the ministers of God. All that to say that we can't assume that everybody who is called a servant in the New Testament is also then a office holder within the church. In a real sense, we should all be diakonos. We should all be servants of the church, servants of God. Yet, of course, not all of us can or should be placed into that office. So there is something more to being a deacon than just a willingness to serve, something more than just being somebody who is active in serving in the church. Well, the first time we see deacons in the New Testament, as I said before, they're not even called deacons. In Acts 6, we get a glimpse of the normal life in the early church. The church was growing. It was growing rapidly. The apostles, functioning as elders, were tending to the needs of the congregation as best they could. Yet this arrangement posed problems, and it was threatening the unity of the church. The Hellenistic Jews, those who were more in, influenced by the Greek culture and the Greek language, they believed that the Hebrews were getting the better of the attention of the elders. But we are not told whether or not their gripe or their complaint was accurate or not. Either way, it was causing friction. The elders were already being pulled away from their primary work of the ministry of the word and of prayer. They were already being pulled away from that to some degree just to try to serve the tables, to try and care for the widows. And this conflict was threatening to pull them away even further. So what could they do? The physical needs of the people were important in the ministry of the word and of prayer were important. They could not be responsible for both, not primarily and not adequately. And while those elders did not think themselves above serving tables, they didn't think themselves above meeting the tangible physical needs of the congregation, they recognized that God had called them to focus on other things. So, there was a real problem in the church that needed attention. And for the good of the church, the elders could not be more fully pulled away from the ministry of the word and prayer that had been entrusted to them. So the twelve gathered the church together and told them, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So that is the problem. So what was the solution? The solution was to set men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom aside, that they might take charge for the real, tangible, important needs of the congregation. 
And while growing numbers of the congregation would cause eventually a shortage of manpower if the number of servants isn't also increased, the primary issue was not that there was just too few elders in the church to carry on both the spiritual and physical needs of the people. So it wasn't primarily a problem of manpower, it was a problem of calling and function in the church being disrupted by the real and important issues of the people. So what was needed were men who could serve and care for the tangible, the physical needs of the congregation so that the elders could care for the spiritual needs of the congregation. They needed men who had a different focus, different priorities of ministry within the body, different than what the elders were called to. Something else was needed to complement the work of the elders and to complete the care of the, that the people of God required. So seven men were set aside, and those seven men serve as the prototype of deacons and their service within the church. These men served in an official, set-apart, and recognized role within the church. They were known they were respected, and they had responsibilities. Well, it may come as a surprise to some that men who were set aside to serve the tangible needs of the body would have strict qualifications that went along with the office. In Acts 6, they were looked for men who were of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Interestingly, in all the qualifications were given for deacons, none are listed about how good at carpentry they are. None is good about how good they are with plumbing or how good they are with general house or vehicle maintenance or yard work. Those kind of things we typically might associate with a deacon or finances or business sense. None of those things. Similar to when we look at the qualifications for an elder, we don't see a lot of the things that we normally expect of elders listed under qualifications. In 1 Timothy 8, or 3, 8 through 13, we get a more complete list of the qualifications to which deacons are to be held. And it's right after the qualifications for elders. I'm going to read them both. Because I want us to be able to have fresh in our mind to be able to compare the qualifications for elders with the qualifications for deacons. So you can turn with me there to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to read the first 13 verses. So it's Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons, again, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, those lists look fairly similar, do they not? Husband of one wife, under control, a good manager of his household, tested and proven blameless, possessing a solid understanding of Scripture. While Paul used different words in these lists, much of these lists speaks to the same things. In fact, the only two things that really stick out from one another between the elders' qualifications and that of the deacons is the elders' aptness to teach, along with the special requirement for the deacon's wife. Well, let's first briefly walk through the requirements for a deacon, and then we will address these two differences. Suffice to say up front that the deacons must be men of similar character, wisdom, and godliness to that which the elders are called. The verse, deacons must be dignified, meaning that they must be men of honor, men of good character, men who are worthy of respect. They must not be double-tongued. They must be people who can be taken at their word, the kind of men who say what they mean, and they mean what they say. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. That doesn't mean they can't drink or they can't make a profit. But they must be men who are disciplined and under control, that they live by principle, not by convenience, and not by greed. Deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Beloved, one cannot hold to what one does not know. Deacons must be men of the word. They must know the word. They must live obediently to the word of God. Deacons are men who have been tested and tried and found faithful. Paul says that they've been found blameless. They are, they are found blameless according to their whole qualification again. As we say that the qualifications for deacon, just like elder, are mostly character-based. Their character has been proven. Their temperance has been seen in their actions, as well as their grasp of the gospel. Deacons are men who are faithful in their marriages. They are not drawn to people and places who had, which would be unfitting for them. Their homes are godly homes. Their marriages are testaments of the gospel, and their children are under the loving discipline of a caring father. So now let's look at the two unique qualifications given by Paul, one for the elder and one for the deacon's wife. 
The unique qualification for the elder is tied to the specific purpose of his office. He is to be devoted to the word and to prayer. His function in the church is to provide leadership and to protect the congregation from false ideologies, false religions, and false gospels. As such, he must be able to rightly handle and teach the word of God. He must be able to rightly defend the word of God against the myriad of, of errors that are present in the world around. Those same kind of errors that are present in the culture that continually seek to infiltrate their way into the church. He must be able to teach the congregation what they need to know to remain faithful to the gospel once for all handed down to the saints. That requires a level of understanding and a skill set that is unique to the office of the elder. One without, he cannot fulfill the purpose of his office. Deacons don't have that same function in the church. They are not tasked with providing vision and instruction, at least not primarily. Of course, we need to be careful not to press that too far. That may not be the purpose in the creation and function of the office of deacon. Yet even in that first group of seven, those first seven men that were set apart in Acts 6, which I would argue is the first institution of the office of deacon, we see men who were gifted teachers and evangelists. So our definition of what a deacon must be should be determined by the reason for the office and the qualifications to which they are held. And yet our definition of what a deacon may be should allow for the ministry of such men as Stephen and Philip. The former who boldly proclaimed the gospel, who called out the leaders of Israel, who gave one of the best sermons found anywhere in Scripture, even to the point where they picked up stones and killed him, the first Christian martyr. Wasn't an elder, wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon faithfully proclaiming the word of Christ and would not be silenced. Then, of course, we have Philip. When we see him later on, he is called the evangelist as he travels in Samaria and it performs signs and wonders among the people and sees a great harvest. Well, how about the qualification, the unique qualification for the wives of deacons? Well, here we need to recognize that there can be some controversy or maybe some difference of opinions in this passage, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. You may have a translation in front of you that reads a bit different. Or you may have heard that the word translated here as wives can also mean just simply women. So instead of reading that the wives of deacons must such and such, it would read that women likewise must be like this. And in some circles, that is taken to mean that Paul is giving three sets of qualifications in 1 Timothy. One for elders, one for male deacons, and one for women deacons. 
As much as I respect some of the men who have come to that conclusion, I do not agree with them. I do not think that Paul here is including women as being able to serve in the office of deacon. I believe that in those places in Scripture where a woman is listed as a servant of Christ, such as Phoebe in Romans 16, they are rightfully recognized as faithful servants of Christ and His church. Yet, they were not, because of that, holding an office within the church. All parts of the body of Christ are called to serve. As I said before, we should all be diakonos in the church. We should all be servants of God, serving the church, serving one another. Yet not all are given position and title. In fact, many of the greatest and most faithful servants in the church are not office holders. Well, some might say then, that it is very odd that Paul would give qualifications for a deacon's wife when he gave no such qualifications for an elder's wife. Is not an elder called to a, a higher, more public office? Should not his wife then also be called to a higher standard? While there is, I think, much implicit about the character and behavior of, a, of an elder's wife, assumed in the statement that he must manage his household well, there is an important difference between the elder's work and the deacon's that makes this additional qualification reasonable. The elder's primary responsibility in the church is in leadership and in preaching the word of God. Those are areas in which his wife cannot come alongside and serve with him. She is forbidden from having authority over men in the church. And she is forbidden from preaching the word of God in the church. She is a tremendous asset to the elder and to the work to which he is called, but she cannot join alongside him in that work. Of course, the deacon's responsibilities in the church are different. In many cases, as they care for the tangible and physical needs of the congregation, their wives can and often should come alongside them and work with them. There are many times when a deacon's ministry of meeting needs or visiting those who are shut in or the elderly, there are many times when that work can be better done with their, the inclusion of their wife. The nature of his ministry allows, if not outright expects, the inclusion of his wife as they identify the needs within the church and as they seek to meet the needs in the church and as they seek the unity within the body of Christ. As such, it is perfectly reasonable that Paul would include separate qualifications for the wives of deacons where he did not do so for the wives of elders. Well, as we think about the ministry of deacons within the church, as I said before, I'm going to list a few things that they are not, and then a few things that they are, hoping that we can thereby get a clearer picture of what deacons are called to and how they should function in the church. Biblical deacons are not just those who are willing to help. They must be men who are able and willing to help, sure. But there is much more to the function of deacon in the church than just a willingness to help. 
A quick glance at the qualifications for the deacon should make that clear. It is not just somebody willing to chip in. Biblical deacons are not necessarily those who are the most gifted in serving, handling money, or those who possess the most business sense. This is not a position given to those who have the best resume or those who have the greatest worldly success. As with elders, as we have said, this is first and foremost an office that is character-focused. The heart of the man is always more important than the skill of the man. Biblical deacons are not the B-team in regard to church service. This isn't an office for those who want to serve, but are not really up for the true, important work of the elders. I'm hoping you're seeing some sarcasm in with her. If it's not coming through, it's intended. As we have seen, the qualifications for a deacon, for his character, for his godliness, for his home, are just as stringent as they are for the elder. This is no place for the spiritually immature, no place for the lazy, no place for the unambitious. The office of deacon is not just a holding place for aspiring elders. This is one way that at various times in church history, this office has been misused. And instead of being filled with men who are already character proven, ready and skilled to identify the needs of the church and to go out and meet those needs, it was a time used as a mere stepping stone for those who wanted to be in ministry. As Paul directed, this is an office for men who are already tested and tried and found blameless. The one caveat that I want to add into that one clarifier is that a man might serve as deacon while he is not yet qualified to serve as an elder if the one qualification for being an elder that is not currently met is that he has not yet been proven to have the skill, the experience, or the training to rightly teach God's word. In that case, it might be right that he would serve as a deacon even as he aspires to the office of an elder until such time that his ability to teach has been properly tested and tried. Biblical deacons are not called to be the workhorses to serve on behalf of the congregation. They are called to facilitate ministry. They are called to help equip the body for ministry and to call others to join them as they serve. They serve as part of the body that the whole body might better serve one another as God has gifted them. And we could add, as was mentioned in the beginning, deacons are not to be the governing board of the church. They are not to function as a buffer between the congregation and the elder as though they needed to protect the church from the elders. In fact, if anything, it would be the other way around, that they would protect the elders from undue accusations and squabbles. So if that is a list of things that deacons are not... What about what deacons are? What should they be? Well, biblical deacons are as character proven as the elders. I know I'm keeping hitting that same point, but it's the basis of their qualifications to be a deacon. They have been tested and tried and proven faithful. They manage their homes well, and they have created a Christian home in which their wives and their children can thrive. 
Biblical deacons are knowledgeable and faithful to the word of God. They understand the gospel rightly. They are known for their confidence in what they believe, not for being easily swayed by every change of wind of doctrine. Too often, deacons are made up of men who are good old boys, who are willing to just do some things and get some things done in the church, but are not spiritual men. First and foremost, deacons are called to be men of the word. They are character-proven, godly, faithful men. Biblical deacons will not be made qualified on the basis of their worldly success, Yet they are often men who are capable leaders and successful in business. To be a deacon is not primarily to be called to leadership within the church, but very many deacons are good, experienced leaders among men. They are very practical men, knowledgeable, wise, and experienced. Biblical deacons may, as we mentioned before, be very capable teachers like Stephen, or they may be powerful evangelists like Philip. According to their gifting and passion, they may at times preach in the church. They may teach second session. They may lead Bible studies. Because they are respected and proven men in the church, they will often be sought out for wisdom and find opportunity to mentor the next generation. Biblical deacons are men who are faithful to meet the needs of the church even if and when they hold no official title and get no recognition. If they are not men who are already serving in the church, they're very likely not men who are qualified to be deacons. They are not driven by the hope of recognition or personal glory. There are men who have learned to see the kinds of needs in the church that others often miss and they are driven to see that those needs are met. Biblical deacons assume a subordinate and supportive role to that of the elders. They do not stand between the congregation and the elders as though to shield the congregation. They labor to carry out the vision of the elders for the congregation. Biblical deacons safeguard the unity of the body by observing potential problems before they have a chance to cause real damage in the congregation. They prevent bitterness and jealousy within the body by making sure that there are not real needs that are going unmet. That's what we see in Acts 6 when the first institution of deacons. There were needs that were being unmet. There was division that was being caused. The unity of the body was at risk. So they set apart men to be able to identify needs to secure the, the re resolution of those needs and protect the unity of the body. Much more could be said, but we don't have time this morning. It has been said that elders lead ministry, that deacons facilitate ministry, and that the congregation does ministry. I think that summary is helpful for us and avoiding the ditch on either side to the right understanding of what deacons are supposed to be. The elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the church does the ministry. Deacons are not called to lead the church as though they are pseudo-elders. And they are not just glorified janitors. 
We need to avoid falling on either side of error. The way that we appoint deacons at legacy might seem a bit odd to some who have not seen it done this way before. Instead of nominating a group of men to a generic board of deacons from which that group of men would determine who to, will serve in what capacity and when, we are appointing specific men to specific areas of ministry within the church. We think this is more practical and an effective way to organize the ministry of the deacons within this church and is a more in keeping with the initial selection of deacons in Acts 6. The office of deacon was, as most believe, instituted on the occasion of the need for better care to be given to the widows in the early church. That was an area of ministry that was not being cared for as it needed to be, and it was causing tension. So a specific need was seen, and then specific men were chosen to meet that need. This is what we have set out to do here at Legacy. We have looked at the needs of the church. We have looked at the men in the church who might be qualified to serve as deacons, as well in the areas in which they might be gifted to serve. So we have sought to appoint the right men in the right areas of ministry. We thereby better enable them to serve according to their gifting and according to the need of the church. So naming them to an office within the church serves to help clarify where they can be of the greatest benefit to the body. It's clarifying for the one who is put in that office according to the needs of the church. And it will also serve to clarify for the church who is best suited to help them or those around them when needs arise. So it is the benefit of the church to know who is responsible in what areas of ministry, who is going to be best capable, best equipped to handle concerns, have the best knowledge of who else might be able to help to meet the needs. So that is why we have chosen to select specific men for specific roles rather than just creating a generic body that must then debate and discuss and try to find out how best to serve. In that situation, I'm sure many of us have seen, it can be very difficult for the church to know who among the deacons to even ask if there's a question or a problem. Who are they even supposed to reach out to? Who can they go to? It can be very difficult to understand in that kind of situation. Well, I've said it before, and I will continue to say it, Legacy would not be where it is as a church today if everything was dependent on me. I simply don't have the skill, the time, or the awareness to bear the brunt of preaching and vision casting as well as to care for all the needs that arise in the body. I am supremely thankful for the men and women in this church that God has given us that have so faithfully served one another. I have often been amazed as I've reflected on how well the members of this church have cared for one another. The men and women of this church are eager to serve one another, and they are quick to answer the call when it is given. 
And so, beloved, as, as we discuss the office of deacon, we discuss service in the church, I urge you all the more, as you have already loved and cared for one another, to continue to do so. Do not grow weary in showing honor and love one to another. To the three deacon nominees, which I trust will be affirmed by the members in just a few minutes, I call on you to embrace and thrive with the trust that you have been given, to labor diligently as unto the Lord, to serve this body with all the gifts that he has given you. Do not grow weary in serving. Do not fall prey to the lie that you alone are to serve. Make it part of your mission at Legacy to help equip and impassion this congregation to come alongside you and to serve one another according to the gifts that they have been given. No one part of this body is sufficient on its own. No one part of this body can survive on its own. God has designed that this church be made up of many parts with many gifts, and we need them all. And so, beloved, as we close, be children of the Father in heaven and be more concerned with how you might serve others than how others might serve you. Because that is the way of the world. May God increase our numbers. May he increase our love one for another. And may he cause us to excel in service. Father, I thank you for your wisdom and how you have ordered your church. I thank you that you have given us direction so we know how best to serve one another, how best to be a light of Christ in the community. I pray that you would make us faithful here, Lord. I pray that you would be with these deacon nominees, that you would help them to, to love and embrace the role into which they are being placed. Pray for this church, that they would come alongside and be eager to help serve with and alongside the deacons that there would never be shortage of those who are willing to help out when it's needed. That the unity of this church would not be put at risk because there are real needs that are simply falling through the cracks. Give us all better eyes to see the hurts, the longings, the needs of those around us. Give us hearts that are full of compassion and love that will not rest until we have eased the pain and suffering of those that we can help. And that none would feel isolated and alone in this body. Grow us together in unity, Father. Increase our numbers, increase our unity, increase our love one for another. Make us a beacon of Christ in the dark and weary land. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.